I want you to open your Bible to Acts chapter 27. Before we look at the text itself, I want to tell you a little bit of a personal testimony. A number of years ago, before I came to be the pastor of Grace Community Church, which is 23 years ago now, I was a youth pastor in a church, and I had a good friend who was also a youth pastor, and the two of us said, let's get our leaders Let's get the guys in our group and the gals in our group that are the real leaders, and let's have a leadership retreat. And so he said, great. I said, I'll bring about a dozen, and you bring about a dozen. We'll have about 24, 25 kids, and then you and I, and uh, we'll do a leadership retreat. Now, let's think about where we want to do it. So he said, well, look, I know about a, a boat. It's a, it's a purse seine. Any of you who've been around uh, shipyards know what a purse seine is. It's a, it's a great big kind of uh, fat look, uh, looking boat that's like a tugboat, only bigger. And he said, I know one that's been 18 years on the Bering Sea. A real hardy boat and it's got all kinds of bunks in it and we can do all the food. And we'll have this leadership retreat and we'll do the whole nine yards ourselves. And we'll have this captive audience and we'll, we'll take off from San Pedro and we'll, we'll uh, cruise out to Catalina. And we'll stay on the boat and spend a couple of days out there doing some leadership training. And, and we'll go around the other side of the island and we'll do some snorkeling. And we'll just have a great time. I said, super. So we loaded all these kids on that purse 18 years, you know, cracking through ice on the Bering Sea. We head for Catalina and a Santa Ana condition comes up. You know the Santa Ana winds that blow through here? Well, they also blow out the going west on the coast. And this was the, one of the severest Santa Ana conditions that had ever happened. We had docked the ship in Catalina Harbor. And the winds came and they were so severe that it began to, to affect the city of Avalon in Catalina, which is 26 miles off the coast. The waves got so high that they were bashing in the storefronts. And we've, we got off the ship, and the ship broke loose from the anchors. The first of all, it broke loose from the stern anchor, and then it began to swing, began to swing, and it swung around and took out the pier at Catalina. It wiped out the end of the pier, and of course that sunk the boat. So this boat had spent 18 years on the Bering Sea, sunk at Catalina. I mean, can you imagine this? And we're all off in time, and we've gotten most of our stuff off. Uh, during the night, the waves were crashing on the storefront. It ruined the ships that were in the harbor. In the morning, there were on the sand, literally, engines that were all that were left of ships. One guy was starting on a cruise around the world and stopped in Avalon for dinner. And by the time he got back to his ship, it was gone, literally disintegrated, smashed. Um, that, was, that was my only experience with a shipwreck. We were stranded there. Uh, for two days because there was so much confusion they had closed the airport because some of the airplanes were damaged finally they put us on an airplane to fly us back and I'll never forget the airplane uh, the guy looked at us and asked how much we weighed so he could determine where he's going to sit us because the thing had to be balanced perfectly in order to take off and uh, he said you have to sit up in the front next to the pilot and so I went up and sat there and it was an old old plane like a Grumman goose you know with the with the two rotary engines up like this and uh, I was sitting there and I looked there was about a two-foot hole in the floor you could see the the runway through and um, this was supposed to be an amphibious plane it was 
we all loaded on the thing and we took off. You know, it's, it takes off a mountain in Catalina and you're supposed to take off like this. Well, this thing goes off the edge of the mountain down and then up. So we're sinking while this thing is cranking, you know, trying to get back up. We flew all the way to Long Beach Airport to land and the gear wouldn't come down. So they flew us back to Catalina, landed us in the water and took us up and said, we'll try the other airplane. Uh, fortunately, we said, nah, we'll take a boat. <laughs> But that was my only experience with a shipwreck, and as I look back on it, I can't say that it had any profound effect on me. I do remember, I do remember if they found a dead body under the pier in the morning. One man had tried to stay with his boat, and he drowned. They found him washing back and forth up under the pier. We were stuck there for two days, and the only thing we could think to do was go in the local high school gym, and we played about 20 hours of basketball. And I think we, 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 we decided that the team that got to 1,000 first would win. So it was a very, it was a very interesting occasion. I do remember the blisters that everybody had. But that's my only experience with a shipwreck. And as I say, it wasn't particularly significant, although the Lord may have done some spiritual work in the hearts of some of the kids that were there. Uh, the Apostle Paul is two up on me. According to 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 25, Paul suffered three shipwrecks. Three. And I want to take you to the most significant of those three shipwrecks in Acts chapter 27. And I want to just take you through this shipwreck story because I think it's one of the great illustrations of leadership in all of the pages of the Bible. It seems, I think, at first like a rather unlikely place to go to learn about leadership, but it isn't. When the trip starts, Paul is a prisoner. When it ends, he's in charge. Okay? That's basically the storyline. When it starts, he is a prisoner. When it ends, he is in charge. And what you have here is the emerging of leadership. And you find out the characteristics and the qualities of leadership in this time of tremendous stress as he goes through a shipwreck. Inevitably, uh, you will learn, if you haven't learned it already, maybe you'll learn it this morning and see it uh, reinforced in life. You will learn that leadership finds its greatest moment in the time of crisis. The more severe the crisis, the greater the opportunity for leadership to surface. It's in the difficult times that you find out what kind of quality people have, particularly leaders. And that's exactly what you have here. Another thing to keep in mind is leadership is not a question of rank. It's not a question of title. It's a question of response to difficulty. Doesn't matter what your title is, that doesn't make you a leader, but how you respond to crisis determines your leadership capabilities. And that's what you see here. Let's look at verse 1, chapter 27. Paul has been in prison in Caesarea. Caesarea was named, of course, after Caesar. It was a seacoast city in Israel. There in Caesarea, the Romans who occupied the land of Israel had stationed their Roman army. And so it was a military town. In fact, that was just about its only purpose. Caesarea was just a little bit up the coast from uh, Tel Aviv, from what you, you would know as Joppa, where Peter was. The Romans set their military camp there and became a military town. Paul was a prisoner there for a long period of time. Uh, he had been taken captive from the temple in Jerusalem. The Romans had taken him to protect him from the Jews who wanted to kill him. And they kept him in prison because he incited a riot. And finally, he demanded a trial. And because he was a Roman citizen, he said, you've got to send me to Rome. You've got to give me a trial. You can't just keep me in jail for no reason. And so you remember he appealed to Caesar at the end of chapter 26. It says this man might have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. And so now because he appealed to Caesar, we're going to send him to Rome and he's going to get a trial in Rome. So it was decided, verse 1, that we should sail for Italy. 
off to Rome they go. They, they proceeded then, the soldiers did, to deliver Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. This is interesting. Centurions, obviously, were people who, over, who were over a hundred men. Century being a hundred. A centurion was a soldier over a hundred men. Generally speaking, if you study Roman history, you'll find that the best soldiers, the top guns, if you were, were the centurions. They were soldiers. In other words, they were in the battle, in the fray. They led by example. They, they were the fighters. They weren't in the background planning things. They were leaders because they had to lead a hundred men in the dire times of hand-to-hand -hand mortal combat. It is also interesting that the cohort or the band which Julius led was, was the Augustan cohort. Augustus was Caesar. So what this was, was the crack 100 troops that were assigned to protect Caesar. And this man was over those 100 men. You can be sure the best 100 soldiers were in the Augustan band. And you can be sure the best of them was the man who led that band. So here you have the finest of the Roman soldiers. And they are the ones who are taking care of these prisoners. Paul was a major political hot potato. He stirred up people everywhere he went. The Roman world was very familiar with Paul. Because every time he went into cities, a riot started. They knew what he was like. They knew he preached a religion that was unpopular with the Jews and created tremendous animosity there. They knew he preached a religion that was unpopular with the Caesars because they wanted worship for themselves. It was unpopular with those who worshipped Apollos or uh, Apollo rather or Escalapius or Sibyl or Diana or anybody else that was in their religious pantheon. And so Paul was a very significant prisoner, and they wanted to take good care of him. And so they assigned these very, very good troops to him. They got on a ship, verse 2 says, they embarked on an Adramitian ship. Adramitius is the name of a, of a city. They got on the ship that was registered there. You know how all ships have their, their home port identified on the stern. And this ship was from Adramitius. It was about to sail to the regions along the coast of Asia, or Asia Minor, which would be modern Turkey. Uh, so they put out to sea, accompanying Paul. You notice we in verse 1. That is Luke. Luke is the writer, so he was there. Aristarchus is also mentioned. These were two of Paul's buddies, two of his dearest and most precious friends. Now you see that the ship sailed along the coast. There are two kinds of ships in the ancient world. There were coastal ships and there were open sea ships. This was a smaller vessel and it would only sail along the coast. It wouldn't venture into the open sea. The Mediterranean can be very treacherous. And these kind of ships basically tacked along the shore and just kind of moved along the shore. The winds were westerly. If you're sailing into the wind, you have to tack back and forth. And so this ship would tack, never losing sight of the, of the seacoast. The time of the year was about August, probably late August, still westerly winds and good sailing in the Mediterranean. Verse 3, the next day we put in at Sidon. They went from, from uh, Haifa or from um, Caesarea, rather, up the coast of Israel to, to Sidon. You've heard of the cities of Tyre and Sidon, and only Sidon remains. And they stopped at Sidon. It would be one day's sail. And they ported at Sidon. Now, immediately you get to see here the development of the characteristics of leadership coming to the fore. We put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul with consideration. That's pretty remarkable. Here's the first characteristic of a leader that begins to surface. A leader is respected. A leader is respected. Something happened in one day 
from the time that this man Paul was put into that ship until they docked at Sidon to win over the heart of Julius. Now, Julius is not a soft touch. This man is the, is the top gun. He's the leader of the crack troops that guard the emperor. This is a tough guy. This is not a man whose heart is easily won. This is not a man whose mind is easily convinced. This is not a trusting man. This is a doubting man. This is a wily man. This is a distrustful man. And yet in one day's time, he was treating Paul with consideration. There's something about a leader that is winsome. There's something about a leader that captivates the people around him and causes them to respect him, causes them to look up to him. You can imagine that it was typical that Julius would treat prisoners with absolutely no consideration, right? A Roman prisoner was, was the worst, was less than a slave. There was no reason to assume that Paul would be treated any different than any other Roman slave or Roman prisoner would be treated. But nonetheless, he is treated with consideration or, if you will, with respect. It is essential in the life of a leader that he have the respect of people, that he be able to gain that respect. And Paul obviously had something about his personality that won the admiration and won the respect of this man in a day. There's a second characteristic of a leader that comes through in this text. It says also in verse 3 that Julius allowed Paul to go to his friends and receive care. What does that mean? In the city of Sidon, there was a church. A church had been founded in Sidon. When they landed at Sidon, Paul must have said to Julius, who by now knows him, or he wouldn't have treated him with such kindness, he must have said to Julius, would you mind if I go ashore and see some of my friends, some of my Christian friends? Why did he want to do that? At the last part of verse 3 in the New American Standard, it says to go to his friends and receive care. That Greek word is a medical term. And what it tells us is that Paul was sick. Paul was ill. It would have been pretty normal for the centurion to say, get back in the hold of the ship because all the prisoners were down in the belly of the ship. How Paul got even into contact with Julius is hard to understand, but he had already won his heart over in just a day. And now he says, can I go ashore because I'm sick and my friends will be able to care for me? Now the assumption of a typical soldier would be, this guy's going to go ashore and I'll never see him again, right? I mean, that's a fair assumption. This is a prisoner. And Roman law said that if you lose a prisoner, what happens? You lose your life. In other words, you would be executed if you lost your prisoner. And yet, Julius allowed Paul to go to his friends and receive medical treatment. That's the second thing about a leader. He has trusted. He has trusted. People trust him. They believe that he has their interest in his heart. They believe that he is loyal to them. They believe that he would never do anything to hurt them, but that what he wants to do for them is that which will be the kindest and the most gracious thing possible. In other words, a true leader is followed by people who are convinced that he has their interest in his heart. And somehow Julius did not believe that Paul would take his freedom and run and cost Julius his life. A leader is respected. He earns the respect of people because of his character, and he is trusted. People know they have 
safety in him because he will do nothing to harm them. Paul did come back, which solidified his character, obviously, in the mind of Julius. Now, let's follow in verse 4. Now we get into the story. From there we put out to sea and sailed under the shelter of Cyprus because the winds were contrary. There's a lot of uh, little things in here I won't go into that, that tell us they were having a lot of difficulty tacking back and forth with this westerly wind and trying to go where they wanted to go. The winds were blowing contrary to them rather than behind them. As they were sailing west, they were sailing into that wind. They sailed through the sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia. And again, they're sailing right along the southern coast of Turkey in that area. They landed in a place called Myra at Lycia. And there the centurion found an Alexandrian ship sailing for Italy. They had to switch ships because this was just a little coastal vessel that bopped along the shore and they needed to get into the main Mediterranean Sea and make that shot for Rome. And so they did that. They shifted over to a grain ship. The typical grain ships were great big, fat, bulky things. They usually had one mast sticking out of them with a huge square sail. Very hard to handle, but large. And they would carry huge amounts of grain. This ship, as we learn later in the chapter, also had 276 people on it. So it was a fairly good-sized ship. And he put us aboard. And so now we're off for Italy. And when we had sailed for a good many days, we don't know how many, maybe two weeks, uh, with difficulty had arrived off Canidus, since the wind didn't permit us to go farther, we sailed under the shelter of Crete off Salmone. Crete is an island 140 miles long. They wanted to sail across the northern side of it to protect them from the winds coming in from the west, but they couldn't do it. They couldn't get this big uh, ship, this big cumbersome thing to do that. They wound up going south, and then they had to come around and get on the back side of Crete uh, to get into the harbor. It was very difficult to handle the ship, verse 8, and with difficulty sailing past the island of Salmone, they came around the edge, came to a certain place called Fair Havens near uh, the city of Lycia. So they, they docked the thing there. Probably they were dumping grain or, or taking on grain or whatever. Verse 9. When considerable time had passed, you say how much time? Probably another month. They could well be six weeks into this thing. If it started, now follow this, if it started in August, late August, they're right now at the end of September. That is very significant. To this day, right now in modern times, from September 15th to November 15th, People don't sail on the Mediterranean. Why? Because the winds shift from being the westerly winds to being the northeastern wind, which is the cold, cold wind that blows down off the Caucasus Mountains and west and accelerates speed as it comes flying down the European continent. And by the time it hits the sea, it is, it is a dangerous, dangerous wind. And so from September 15th to November 15th, you don't want to be messing around out there in a wooden boat with a little sail. It's dangerous. Even to this day, it is still dangerous. And so, verse 9, considerable time had passed, and the voyage was now dangerous, since even the fast was already over. What does it mean, the fast? The fast was a, was a name for Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur is the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement was celebrated either at the end of September or the 1st of October by our calendar. So you're moving into October. It's into the dangerous season. Now look what happens in verse 9. Now remember now, six weeks have gone by. Verse 9 says, Paul began to admonish them. Now, isn't that interesting? You say, what is he doing? He is a prisoner down in the belly of the ship. He is enchained like everybody else. He is being taken uh, to trial. Well, what is he doing here? This is another characteristic of leadership. Leadership takes initiative. Leadership takes initiative. 
Paul saw a problem, so he brought it up. It didn't matter that he wasn't the captain of the ship. It didn't matter that he wasn't the second mate. It didn't matter that he wasn't the pilot of the ship. It didn't matter that he wasn't the owner of the ship. It didn't matter. Any of that didn't matter. All that mattered was there was a problem, and this is a man who sees problems and steps in to take the initiative. That's leadership. You know, we always say there are people who who make things happen. There are people who watch things happen, and there are people who don't know what's happening. This is a man who makes things happen. This is a man who doesn't wait around to be elected. This is a man who is is initiating action. Paul began to admonish them. And he said to them, Men, I perceive that the voyage will certainly be attended with damage and great loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also our lives. Guys, we are in big trouble. We're going to lose this ship. We're going to lose this cargo. And potentially we're going to lose our lives. Let me give you a fourth characteristic of good leadership. It has sound judgment. It has sound judgment. It doesn't run out on some kind of a bizarre limb. Paul knew it wasn't smart to sail. He knew they had waited too long to head for Rome. It wouldn't be wise to take this big, cumbersome, bulky thing out into the Mediterranean open sea with the, with the winds coming down from the northeast, potentially destroying the ship. So he said, men, if we go... The ship's going to be lost, the cargo's going to be lost, and our own lives potentially are going to be lost. In the midst of the crisis, somebody's got to have good judgment. The leader steps forward. He's already earned respect. He's already earned trust. He takes initiative and he uses good judgment. Verse 11. But the centurion, this is Julius now, was more persuaded by the pilot and the captain of the ship. Well, you can understand that, can't you? Somebody's going to say, look, I, I am the pilot of the ship. I am the captain of the ship. I know about this stuff. This guy, this guy is some kind of preacher. This guy is a prisoner. You can't listen to what he says. And all the captain of the ship and the pilot can think about is the money that's locked up in the cargo. And they want to get there as fast as they can so they can get another load and keep that ship moving. We can't wait. So they say, we have to go. And the centurion, naturally believing the people who are the seasoned seamen, believes them more than Paul. And then verse 12. Because the harbor was not suitable for wintering, they didn't want to stay there all winter. It may be named Fair Havens, but it was a terrible place to spend the winter. The truth of the matter was, it was this cheesy, tiny little podunk, no place deal, and the sailors didn't want to get stuck there for three months. There wasn't any action in that town, bottom line. So because the harbor was not suitable for wintering, the majority reached a decision to put out to sea from there. You've always got to watch votes, majority votes. The majority said, let's leave. What that tells me is the centurion wasn't real sure, the pilot wasn't real sure, the captain wasn't real sure, so he says, let's take a vote. Well, nobody else wanted to spend the whole winter in that crummy little town either. So they all voted to go. Beware of majority opinion. If somehow they said they could reach Phoenix. It's not the Phoenix you know. That would have been a trip. If somehow they could reach, actually, Phoenicia, from which the Phoenicians came. If they could reach Phoenicia, which is a harbor in Crete, it faced northeast and southeast. And, oh, the, it would just be a great place to spend the winter. That's a great town. Let's get there and we'll stay the winter there. 
And then verse 13, they had a false sense of security. It says a moderate south wind came up and they thought they had gained their purpose, so they threw up the anchor and they began gently sailing to Crete close to the shore. But before very long, there rushed down from the land a violent wind called a Euroquillo or Euracleton. Eura is the Greek word Euras. Quillo, the Latin Aquillo, it simply means northeast, northeast, a northeastern wind coming down from the northeast, cold and fierce. And when the ship was caught in it and couldn't face the wind, we gave way to it and let ourselves be driven along. What they basically do is just let the ship go and not fight it. You have to let it go where the wind's going to take it or you'll snap the mast. And so they just let it go. They, they gave way and let it be driven along. Verse 16, and running under the shelter of a small island called Clauda, we were scarcely able to get the ship's boat under control. The, the fat grain ship carried a dinghy on the back, a, a dinghy that supposedly could be loaded with the passengers in the event that they needed a lifeboat. And that dinghy was bouncing along, and as the ship was driven, they had to get that thing up into the boat because it could crash against the big ship and crash a hole into it. And so here they are in the storm, being driven by this fierce wind, trying to hoist this thing up into the ship, and they were able to, to pull it off. It scarcely got up, but they did get it. Verse 17, after they had hoisted it up, they used supporting cables in undergirding the ship. They used to call this frapping the ship. They had winches on the deck, and they would put huge ropes around the hull. And then they would winch these ropes because the, the ships were tongue and groove, wood, and they would begin to fall apart under the power of the, of the wind and the power of the sea, and they would literally begin to, to, to disintegrate. And so they would put these cables around it, and they would winch those cables up to pull the ship tight and keep it from falling apart. So it's very serious. And of course, verse 17, they feared that they would run aground on the shallows of the Surtees. If you ever look at a map of the North African coast, you will see a couple of places called the Surtees, the Greater Surtees and the Lesser Surtees, and they've been known throughout history as the graveyard of sunken ships, because the northeastern winds through the centuries have driven ships to the, to the coast of North Africa and crushed them on the rocks of the Surtees, the rocks and the sands, and then the waves just beat them into disintegration. And so they were headed that direction and couldn't do a thing about it. If they tried to fight it, the wind would snap the mast and they would be on their way anyway. Well, they wanted to do what they could, so verse 18 says they began as they were violently storm-tossed to jettison the cargo. It's getting serious now when you throw away your money. They were throwing away the cargo, dumping the grain as fast as they could. Get this, verse 19, the third day, they threw the ship's tackle. That's the stuff that lets you operate the ship. Now they're in a totally desperate situation. And since neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small storm was assailing us, from then on all hope of our being saved was gradually abandoned. And now they're desperate men and they know they're going to drown. They know it's over. And when they had gone a long time without food, here we go again, then Paul stood up. Who do you think is in charge of this ship now? You think the captain of the ship is in charge? No, he made a stupid decision, right? You think the pilot's in charge? No, he made a stupid decision. You think the centurion's in charge? No, he agreed with the stupid decision. You think the people are in charge? No, they're just as dumb. They voted for this deal. Who is the one guy who said don't do it? Paul. So he knows he's in the driver's seat. And when they'd gone a long time without food, Paul stood up in their midst and said, Men, you ought to have followed my advice. Just what they wanted to hear, right? Don't you hate people to do that? I told you this would happen. 
You should have not sailed from Crete and incurred this damage and loss. Let me tell you a fifth thing about a leader. A leader is known for his wisdom. Sooner or later, sooner or later, wisdom manifests itself. A leader is known for his wisdom. Maybe not at the moment when he gives it, but eventually his wisdom becomes known. Then in verse 22, he says, And now I urge you to keep up your courage, for there shall be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. That's strange, isn't it? We're going to lose the boat, but we're all going to be okay. Here's another thing about a leader. He speaks with confidence. A leader speaks with confidence. A leader inspires with confidence. I remember I was teaching some leadership principles to the police department of the city of Los Angeles, to all of the people from the chief on down, all of the ranking officers. And and, uh, I was doing some of the prayers at the graduation of the police academy, and they were telling me some stories about people coming through the recruiting process and... They told me about one guy who came through. This was before they had women officers. And and they flunked this guy out of the academy because of his voice. And I said, what do you mean because of his voice? And one of these policemen said to me, well, you just can't go up to somebody and say, put him up, you're under arrest. (laughs) You know, we, we think you need to speak with authority. Well, I guess that's all changed unless they teach women to say, put him up, you're under arrest, you know. But there's a certain amount of authority that needs to be conveyed in the voice. The Apostle Paul speaks confidently. This is leadership. He's got a solution. So he speaks confidently. He knows the path that we need to take. He has the solution. So he speaks with confidence. uh, Seventh, if you're writing these down, six is speaking with confidence. Seven, he strengthens others. He strengthens others. And I'll show you how he does it. He says, hey, we're going to be fine. Nobody will be lost. How do you know? Verse 23, this very night, an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve stood before me saying, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar, and behold, God has granted you all those who are sailing with you. Therefore, keep up your courage, men, for I believe God that it will turn out exactly as I have been told. Isn't that great? He says, Calm down. Everything's going to be fine. Speaks with confidence. Strengthens others. And then has unwavering faith. That's number eight. The Lord told him. Sometimes I think about that. You know, I've flown across the Atlantic and had an engine blow on a 747. And and, uh, I think to myself, I've got to preach when I get there so these people don't realize that not only am I going to get there, but they're all going to be safe with me. This is a safe place to be if you're you're in God's purpose. That's a little presumptuous because God may, you know, know that my end has come. But Paul has the confidence of having an angel have appeared to him. And the angel says, it's going to be okay. You've got to get to... Rome, and so all these people are going to be spared along with you. A leader then is known for his wisdom, speaks with confidence, and strengthens others. That is a great characteristic of leadership. You go into a crisis situation, and on the basis of your confidence and your strength and your authority and your unwavering faith and belief that it's going to be a success, people are literally ennobled to accomplish things that otherwise they couldn't accomplish. So, verse 25, keep up your courage, men. I believe God, and it will turn out exactly as I have been told. But, first of all, we must run aground on a certain island. And then it goes on, the 14th night had come. They were driven in the Adriatic Sea at midnight. The sailors began to surmise they were approaching some land. Of course, they thought it was the Surtees, and it would be the end. They took some soundings. They would drop something into the water and touch the bottom. And as it got shorter and shorter, they realized they were getting near the shore. 
They were afraid they were going to run aground, verse 29, on the rocks. They threw out four anchors out of the stern just to hold the ship and hope for the daybreak. Remember, two weeks and they haven't seen the sun. And the sailors are trying to escape from the ship. Now you know you're in trouble when the crew is trying to get out. And they had let down the dinghy or the ship's boat into the sea on the pretense of laying out anchors from the bow. They said, we're going to put anchors off the bow. They really were putting the dinghy. They were going to escape and let everybody else die. Verse 31, Paul said to the centurion, unless these men remain in the ship, you yourselves can't be saved. If one of these guys leaves, you're not going to be saved. God said, you stay and I'll save you. One guy leaves, that promise is off. You think the soldiers believe Paul? Now listen to this. Verse 32, the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. They cut their only source of safety. They cut the lifeboat loose. This is how confident they have become in Paul. Paul says, stay with the ship, cut that thing loose, nobody leave, and I'll tell you, you'll be all right. And they believe him. And they're about, they're in a terrible storm, haven't seen the sun, the ship is anchored, it's being bashed from the backside, they think they're going to crash on the Surtees, they've got no means of escape, and they do exactly what Paul tells them. Here's another characteristic of a leader, he doesn't compromise. He said, this is the way God said it was going to be, and this is the way it's going to be. This is the way God said to do it, and that's the way we're going to do it. No compromise. And so there they sit. Until the day was about to dawn, Paul was encouraging them. Now you know he's in charge totally. No one else is saying anything. He says, take some food. It's the 14th day. You've been constantly watching and going without eating. Imagine 14 days of no food. And they were going to have a tough time swimming to shore with no energy. So he says, let's eat. And I want you to take some food. It's it's for your preservation. For not a hair from the head of any of you shall perish. And having said this, he took bread, gave thanks to God in the presence of them all, broke it and began to eat. Another characteristic of leadership, leaders set the example. He wanted them to eat, so he ate. Leaders set the example. Well, all 276 of them ate all they needed. Verse 38, began to lighten the ship, throwing out whatever remaining wheat was left. When the day came, they didn't recognize the land. They thought it was the Surtees. But they saw a bay with a beach, and they resolved to drive the ship into that. They threw off the anchors, leaving them in the sea, which means they just cut the ropes. They, they loosened the ropes that had tied the rudder. You understand they had had to tie the rudder because if you're in a storm and a, and a wind and you don't tie the rudder, the rudder will go to one side and it'll just go like this all the time. So they had tied the rudder. They untied the thing, let the ship go. They struck a reef where two seas meet together, ran the vessel aground. The prow stuck fast, and the stern began to be shattered by the force of the waves. The soldiers' plan was to kill the prisoners. Why? Because if the prisoners escaped, the soldiers would lose their lives. But the centurion, wanting to bring Paul safely through, right? You don't want to lose this guy. He's the leader kept them from their intention and commanded that those who could swim jump overboard first and get to land and the rest should follow some on planks and others on various things from the ship get this and it happened that they were all safely brought to the land summing up the story and you can read it in more detail for yourself the leader succeeds in a time of crisis leadership emerges It is respected, it is trusted, it takes initiative, it uses good judgment. It is known for its wisdom, wisdom which becomes manifest sooner or later. It speaks with confidence, it strengthens others, it has unwavering faith, does not compromise, leads by example, and ultimately succeeds. 
Here you have a classic illustration of a man who shows you the quality of leadership. And what is especially wonderful for us is that it's not just human, but it's also divine. For in his life was God operating. And that's the added dimension that a Christian has who steps into roles of spiritual leadership. Father, thank you for our time this morning as we've thought about these principles. We pray that you would cause this student body, these precious young people here, to develop into the kind of leaders that you would want them to be. You would cause them to earn the respect and the trust of those around them, to have good judgment, to take initiative to be wise, to be encouragers of others, to speak with confidence and authority because they know your word and your truth and your mind, that you would cause them to live exemplary lives and so to succeed and have others follow to the way of safety. We pray that you'll raise up many leaders, Father, out of this school who can serve you in the advancement of your kingdom for Christ's sake. Amen.